0: Open your Romans chapter 14, please. Romans 14, page 1137, if you're using a pew Bible. And I need to correct something I said earlier. When I said that makes five, I was referring to grandsons. This actually makes eight grandchildren. So I want to make sure that my granddaughters are not overlooked in, in all the celebration. So, so with that proper correction given... Here we are in Romans chapter 14 again. I have been really anxious to get back to the book of Romans with you and intentionally delayed over the last couple of weeks until all of the summer vacations were over. I wanted everybody to be back here so that we could start into this fabulous chapter together and get a real running start at it. In fact, many of the things that we'll say today lay foundations for future studies in this really, really important chapter. It is here in this chapter, if if we take it seriously, that God will do some amazing things in our lives. He will grow us spiritually, both individually and as a body, and he will cement our unity together as we put into practice the things we learn. The topic before us this morning and in the week's follow and how many weeks follow God alone knows such things but in this this morning's message and future messages really the the topic is Christian freedom how to properly exercise our freedom in Christ Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 it was for freedom that Christ set us free but the question that we need to be asking ourselves is how are we to go about enjoying that freedom within the confines of community? Freedom and the confines of community all put together in one package. How do we do that? This is no small question, by the way, no small matter. In fact, it's very, very significant. So significant that the Apostle Paul actually devotes 36 verses of his epistle here to the church at Rome to this very topic. And that, by the way, just reminds me of a a basic principle of Bible interpretation, which I call the paper and ink principle, the paper and ink principle. And it goes something like this. In the ancient world, paper and ink was a very expensive luxury and not readily available. Unlike our day today, day when people can write all kinds of things, much of which shouldn't be written, and spit it out all over the place. In the ancient world, that wasn't true. It was a very expensive process to produce a written document. And so here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul takes 36 verses of his relatively short letter to the church at Rome in which he is, he is giving his most systematic and most definitive presentation of what he calls his gospel, and he occupies himself with the topic of Christian freedom. He spends more verses talking about this than he does other topics that we hold so near and dear to our hearts. So this is not a small matter. The proper living in community together and exercising our freedom in Christ in that community is a big issue. It was a big issue for the church in Rome. It's a big issue for the church through the ages. It is a big issue for this fellowship here and now. How do we live together? What we're talking about here is the gray issues. What are called the gray issues of the Christian life? Now, let me begin by saying that Paul is not, say it again, Paul is not teaching that sin is a matter of personal opinion. Okay? He is not teaching that sin is a matter of personal opinion. He is not teaching that. Do you got that? This is what he is not teaching. Okay? So don't anybody come up to me afterwards and say, well, you know, then is it all just a matter of personal opinion? Sin is never a matter of personal opinion. Paul is not talking about sin. He is talking about all the other areas of life that are the gray areas of life, the secondary matters, the way that we live out our faith in community to one with another and have differing convictions about certain aspects of the Christian life. How do we do that in community without tearing each other up? These are the things that do not determine our eternal standing before God. It is our freedom in Christ, and it is our freedom to hold conflicting and competing and divergent viewpoints. Now the issue is made even a little bit thornier because we don't even all agree on what is the gray issues of life. So although we might agree in principle that it's okay to have differing opinions in the gray areas, we still have to even ask well, what is a gray area and what is not a gray area? And so, as you can see, this thing is loaded with opportunity for misunderstandings, hurt feelings, and damage to the body of Christ. So as we go through this study together, it is my prayer that God will give us humble hearts. Really, that he will humble our hearts before him and before each other. And then in a spirit of love and unity, we will open our ears and listen to hear what the word of God has to say to us. Bow your heads with me, and I'd like to pray to that end. Oh, Lord, as as we launch into this study together... I pray that you would, by your Spirit, humble our hearts, O Lord. We walk, our Father, into a minefield of sorts. Many, many differing opinions strongly held, no doubt. But, our Father, I pray for your grace and your mercy to enable us to be able to not just exist in that environment, but to thrive in it, O Lord. And I pray, our Father, for the unity of this church, that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently one another with such a devotion and a passion that we could overcome those things that divide us. Oh Lord, I pray that as your Spirit confronts long held opinions in many of our hearts, that you would enable us to think anew on some things. And even if our conviction does not change, O Lord, that you would enable us to hold it in a much more gracious way. I pray this, that the glory of Christ could be revealed through us. Amen. Let's read together this extended passage and set the background for the weeks to come. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live... We live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore... Let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine Or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we who are strong... Ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance in the encouragement of the scriptures, We might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. That with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people's praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirty-six verses the Apostle Paul takes to address this most significant topic. Living free in Christ within the confines of community. On the back of your bulletin, I've included an outline for you of the whole section as well as this morning's message. And I've noted there that there are, I believe, six critical lessons that we must learn and practice from this section with regard to Christian freedom. So that we do not rupture the body of Christ. Meeting here at 1330 West 15th Street. I've given them to you here. They're very simple. It's first lesson value, the unity of the church. Secondly, Remember that Jesus is your Lord, not man. Third, freedom is voluntarily restricted by love. Fourth, do not violate your conscience. Fifth, follow the example of Christ. And sixth, accept one another in a spirit of grace. If we can learn these lessons and apply these lessons, it will revolutionize the body here. Before we plunge in here, the first few verses, I think we need to establish some background, some context. So permit me to do that. And let me just start by saying this. The the problem in the church of the first century between Jew and Gentile was a a problem that I don't think we can imagine. It transcends any kind of ethnic barriers that exist in our modern world. From ancient of days, Jews and Gentiles were set apart and were sinfully at one another's throat. Now come Pentecost and the church is born, and these two people groups, these ancient hostile people groups are wed together in one body in Christ and need to learn to live and love and worship together. And so much of the corrective we see in the New Testament is aimed at that particular problem. The depth of that problem, the severity of that problem, the potential, the explosive potential of that problem far and away exceeds anything that you and I know. And so by the Spirit of God, if Jew and Gentile can live together in one body in Christ, then there is nothing that separates you and I that cannot be overcome in the power of the Spirit of God. That has to be our approach. So let's start with a little background. Who are the weak? We're introduced right away, verse 1, to the weak. They're called by the Apostle Paul, weak in faith, verse 1. We can observe some things about them. They are, according to verse 2, vegetarians. According to verse 5, they are keepers of certain holy days. According to verse 21, they were evidently abstainers from wine. According to verses 14 and 20, they were concerned about what was clean and unclean with regard to foods. Clean and unclean. According to verses 22 and 23, they were liable to yield themselves to social pressure. Liable to yielding to social pressure. They were susceptible to social pressure. Finally, verses 13 and 15 indicate to me that they were tender in conscience and easily tripped up. Tender in conscience and easily tripped up. But what does it mean to be weak in faith? What does that term mean? Some suggest that it means that these particular people here in the church at Rome don't, did not believe that we are justified by grace through faith alone before the living God. That is, that they believed that works provided some basis under which one was justified or under which one retained their justified state, their salvation. Some postulate that, that law-keeping in their mind was essential to be saved or to stay saved. I don't think so. I don't think that that's this group at all. I don't think that that's their problem. And the reason I don't believe that is because to have that kind of an understanding is to put one squarely in the camp of those who participated in what's called the Galatian heresy. And we know, if we're familiar with Paul's letter to the church of Galatia, with the severity with which he criticized those who held that position, pronounced upon them a curse, an anathema, declared it to be another gospel, a false gospel, and excluded them from the community of believers. I don't think that's possible here. And the reason I don't think it's possible is because of the tenderness and the pastoral way that the Apostle Paul approaches the problem here in the church at Rome. So I don't believe that he's dealing with legalism in its true theological sense. It's not about legalism. I believe the clue actually lies in verse 2. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The word faith, same Greek word, is is used here, verse 1 and verse 2. But the interesting thing is in verse 2, it's not used in relation to to faith in a person that is Christ but faith or belief that something is legitimate look again at the verse the man has faith the man believes that he can eat all things he's believing that it's legitimate to do excuse me to do something to do something so i think what paul is criticizing here and by the way there is an implied criticism when he says weak in faith that is not a That is not a compliment. It is not a complimentary designation to be called weak in faith. So there is an implied criticism here, but it's a gentle criticism. It's a pastoral criticism. And I think that what Paul is referring to here is that it's not that they are weak in the object of their faith that is in Christ, but they're weak in the outworking of their faith, the outworking of their faith in terms of what it allows and what it prohibits. That's their problem. They're weak in understanding that their position in Jesus Christ allows them to partake or not partake in many things. They're weak in their understanding. They're immature would be another way to look at it. So these weak in faith are immature believers. Now, we're introduced into the strong in faith. You have to go all the way over to chapter 15, verse 1. Notice, by the way, that Paul includes himself among the strong here. Which is another way, reason for me to say that to call someone weak in faith is an implied criticism. It's a soft criticism. Now, we who are strong, Paul putting himself in that group. The opposed to the weak, they're strong. That is, they've come to understand that by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ, that they are now free. They're now free to partake in That which was once off limits. They are no longer controlled by cultural taboos, religious rituals. They have been set aside in Jesus Christ. They're secure in their spiritual union. To do something or to refrain from doing something in this area will not advance their standing before God, nor will it diminish it. They can't improve. They can't diminish. They're standing before God because they understand the reality that they are one with Jesus Christ. And Christ's position before the Father can be neither improved nor diminished. Our righteousness is not our own. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us the moment we, by faith, receive him as our Lord and Savior. Therefore, things like food and drink and particular holy days do not make one or diminish one's status before the Father. Third, background. What is it that's upsetting the church? What is the problem? Why does the Apostle Paul take up this issue? And why does he take it up with such length? Well, the basic issue is this. At its core, the church is being troubled by its inability to work through the issue of differing convictions. That's its problem. The problem is, is that people in the church have differing convictions and they are unable to live in that kind of an environment. To refrain from applying my convictions to you and you applying yours to me. They fail to understand that it's that it's hurtful to do that, that it disrupts the unity of the body. And so at its core, it's really a unity issue. I have certain convictions before the Lord about how I'm to conduct my Christian life and you have yours. But when I try to put mine on you or you put yours on me or we just decide to separate from one another over it, we shatter the unity of the body. This is not a small problem. This is not a small problem. And that takes us to the first critical lesson this morning in verses 1 through 3. The first critical lesson that I hope we can begin to learn and start to apply is that we need to value the unity of the church. First lesson, we need to value the unity of the church. Just listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Now listen, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God is very, very, very concerned about the unity of his church. Very concerned. But see, when frequently, when we approach the topic of unity, we don't approach it biblically. We come at the topic of unity and we, instead of unity, want to insist on uniformity. That's the way we want to get unity. Let's make everybody the same. Let's smooth out all the bumps and fill up all the potholes Right? Cookie cutter Christianity. Bang, 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 bang. Let's stamp them all out. They all look the same. They all talk the same. They all think the same. And we've got unity. But we don't. Because that's not how God works. That does not give any glory to God. God's glory comes from taking a diverse population of people who normally would kill one another... And he redeems them. He transforms them. He puts them together into a body, into a family, where they begin to love one another and serve one another and humble themselves before one another. And the world looks on and they go, whoa, what's going on? What's into those people? There must be some sweet wine they've been drinking. He just transforms people. where there's no explanation possible other than the Spirit of God indwells these people. That brings him glory. It is unity in diversity that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Unity amongst diversity. And as I said earlier, there was no greater diversity in the first century than between Jew and Gentile. So when you bring those two groups together in a true spirit-bound unity, then only God could be responsible for such a thing. By the way, just to remind you, Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, John 13 verses 34 and 35, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Love for one another. How do most groups of Christians deal with unity and diversity within a body? Well, some avoid it. They just avoid each other. That's how they try to deal with it. We've got the, we've got the East you know, congregation. We've got the West congregation. And we just don't talk to each other. And that's how we deal with it. We've got the early service. We've got the second service. We don't see each other. We have different kinds of music. We do everything our own way. And therefore, we don't have to worry about differing convictions. We just have it our own way. Carried to its logical extreme, we would have to have 500 services so that each one of you could have your own private worship service. Right? Then we would have unity, right? Wrong. We would not. Others approach it by antagonizing each other. That is, uh, Sunday morning, it's like Sunday morning at the fights. You know, let's get together and watch people chip and and chaw at each other. Others just tolerate each other. They tolerate each other. Toleration looks like this. It's You kind of look at that person a little bit out of, the side of your, you know, right out of the side of your eye a little, you're not quite sure about that guy, right? You know, my unity is me, myself, and I, and I'm not really sure about those other two. You know what I'm saying? So, so we look at each other and we say, yeah, brother, give me a hug, brother, you know, but still there's that little, something wrong about you. You're a little funny. <laughs> right? We just kind of tolerate it. We don't talk about it. We don't deal with it. We don't love. We just tolerate. It's like a pot on the back of the stove with the burner turned down low. It's just kind of sitting there and getting warm. Eventually, the toleration breaks down. So how do you deal with it? You love each other. You just flat love each other. That's how you deal with it. We have to love each other with a real biblical, uh, humble produced love that serves one another. You know, it's fascinating to me that chapters 12 and 13 in this epistle, Paul calls upon us to love and serve each other. Isn't that true? And beyond that, he calls upon us to love and serve people outside the church. So we're just love and serve each other and we're to love and serve those outside the church. So how much more should we be willing to value unity and love within the body here that we can learn not just to tolerate but to embrace and love and, yea, even glory in our differences in Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters, isn't that true? All right. So how do we, how do we go about this? Paul, what do, what do you have for us here? Well, yeah, I have two ways, Paul says, for you here to, to value the unity of the church. Here they are. They're not really difficult, by the way. They're hard to put into practice, but they're not hard to understand. Here they are, verse 1. The first way, the value of the unity of the church is, verses 1 and 2, the strong must welcome the weak. The strong must welcome the weak. You see it? Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Paul begins his corrective here by speaking to those who are mature in Jesus Christ. To the strong. And by the way, in the context of this chapter, the majority position in the church here at Rome. The weak were a small minority in the church. So Paul is speaking to the majority of the church at large. And he is giving them a very, very simple command. And here it is. Open wide your arms to your brothers and sisters. That's his command. It's as simple as that. Open up your arms wide. Don't approach them like this, but like this. Like this. Those who are less spiritually mature than you, you are to open your arms and to wrap them around them and to love them. The word, the Greek word translated accept here, it means more than tolerate. It means to receive into your society, to receive into your home, to receive into your circle. That is to invite them and embrace them into your life. The command, by the way, is in the present tense which means it is to be an ongoing requirement among the spiritually mature. Not just something you do once, but it is something that as long as that person is weak, you are to continue to embrace them and extend your arms to them. Furthermore, this, this embrace is not for the purpose of squeezing their guts out. Okay? Look at it. Wrap your arms around, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So it's not that we we welcome the weak brother in so that we can start arguing with them right away, so we can start hammering them, so we can start changing their convictions and making them like us. Oh, come on over to my house. Really glad you're here in the church. Come on over. Let's have dinner together. Sit down at dinner. We put dinner on the table before you. Let me open my Bible. Let me start to hammer you with your weak convictions. No, Paul says, no, don't dispute with them. Don't argue with them. Don't attempt to change them. Just love them. That's your command. You're to love them even though they do need to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not for you. You have been not appointed by God to change them. You are not the official conviction converter in the church. It is not your divinely given role to impl- to impose your understanding of the Christian life upon everybody else. Not at all. You have to resist the temptation, Paul says, Resist the temptation to try and change your weaker brother and thus provoke them into sin. Thus provoke them into sin. Well, do they stay weak forever? Well, as we'll develop the argument as we go here, cannot God care for his own? Will he not grow them in faith through the preaching of the word as the spirit grows them and changes them over time to the likeness of Jesus Christ? Give God a little bit of room, huh? Just give God a little room. Now, notice, verse two. Paul says, "One man has faith that he may eat all things. He was weak, eats vegetables only. Let me just kind of nail this down. These weaker brothers, weaker brothers. Who are they? It's likely, I think, that they are Jewish believers." I think it's very likely that the, the strong, the majority believers here were Gentile believers and that these are a small minority of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians who are convinced they need to continue in the traditions prescribed by Moses, that they need somehow to continue in the ancient traditions of their faith and culture. Now, some see in the close connection here between the issue of meat, right, eat meat, don't eat meat the issue that Paul raises in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10 with regard to idol meat. I don't think it's exactly the same issue. I think it's a similar issue. I don't think it's exactly the same issue. And the reason I don't is because that in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about idol meat, that is, meat sacrificed or offered to an idol. That's not mentioned here at all. It's just meat or vegetarian. Although I think idols probably rolled around in the background here behind this. Also, the addition of wine in holy days, which are not brought up in the Corinthian epistle, lead me to believe it's a similar but not an identical problem. Let me try this out on you. Maybe it's just that these believers earnestly, looking back in the Old Testament, read the book of Daniel. And when Daniel was living in a pagan land like these people are in pagan Rome, Daniel refused the king's meat and the king's drink, the king's wine, didn't he? a diet of vegetables and water. And so maybe in just an honest, earnest attempt to follow one of the heroes of their faith, they've decided to, part, to abstain from these things and eat vegetables and drink water. Perhaps that's there. And the, the holy days that are just part of their, the, the warp and woof of their culture, they just can't let go of that stuff. Open your arms up to them. Welcome them in. Say, I'm really glad you're here. Isn't is an amazing thing what Christ has done? But let's not dispute about your diet. It doesn't matter. Secondly, don't look down on each other. The strong, open wide your arms. To both parties, verse 3. Don't look down on each other. Let not him who eats regard with contempt... Him who does not eat, Paul says. I mean, he, he began with the strong, and he's still speaking of the strong here, and he's going to flip in a minute and talk to the weak, but he, he says to the strong, listen, listen. Don't be looking down on people. Don't treat people with contempt. I mean, how prone are we to applying our spiritual standards, right, to other people and telling them, hey, you don't measure up. And we might not say it with our mouth, but we, we have that attitude in our hearts. Comes across in our facial expressions. We might whisper it one to another. I mean, this this weak minority here in the church. They they there's something funny about these people, right? They they kind of stubbornly hold on to these old ways, these outmoded, outdated means of of living their spiritual life. They've got these extra biblical scruples that they won't let go of. <laughs> you know what? I, Enough with them. Let's stick them over in the corners. I mean, if they want to stay, fine. You sit back there in the corner. We don't want to really be bothered with you anymore. You're irrelevant. You're a nuisance. You aggravate me. Paul's saying, listen, verse 3, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't exclude people from the fellowship just because you're more mature than they are. In fact, when you're doing that, one almost must ask the question, are you more mature than they are. I'm trying to think of a contemporary illustration. I'm not ready to jump into all of the you know the thorny issues on the first week, so I'm holding a few back. In fact, I'm holding a lot back. So I was trying to think of one this week that I could bring up that won't uh, get too riled, but here here was one that I was thinking of. Some people, by preference, use certain Bible translations. They have a certain Bible translation that's their preference. Maybe it was the way they were raised. And so that's the Bible translation they like. It's the one that speaks to their heart. Some of those Bible translations are perhaps more outmoded than others. Or perhaps some of those Bible translations are not quite as, as technically accurate as others. And so if we're in the position of the mature, of course, we understand that the New American Standard is the right text. Those who are mature know that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for you ESVers; you'll get there someday. So, <laughs> we have our we have our translation, right? This is the one that you know, and we can we can cite all the evidence. We know the manuscript evidence inside and out. We know the difference between the critical text and the you know the textus receptus, and we know all this stuff. Right? Translation theory, I uh, don't you know, formal equivalence, and i got it all down, and so mine's the best. And then we start looking down on people. We start, what Bible is that you're reading? Is that really a Bible? You know? Or, wow, that thing's so antiquated. That's just passe. I mean, you know what? If, if, that's, if that's who you are, if that's where you are, there's no room for you around here you go hang out in the corner over there lot other people who like Bible translations that were produced in the 16th century. That's the way the church approaches it so often. Paul's saying, listen, don't do that. If you're really mature, stop looking down on your brother in this area. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have freedom in Christ. Can I just say that? It is a wonderful gift to have freedom in Christ, but it is also, if it is not, if it is not bounded by humility and love, it becomes a, a fertile field to grow a noxious crop of contempt, where we start looking down on everybody else. We're free. We've got the inside scoop. We've got the, the. We've arrived at the right position, and everybody else just doesn't measure up. John MacArthur, in his commentary, he says something really profound. I think, listen, he says. Quote, spiritual maturity is a continuum of growth. I like that. Spiritual maturity is a continuum of growth. That is that none of us have arrived. We are all in process. The commentator, Robert Mounts, says one person's overly scrupulous neighbor is another person's libertarian. It all depends on where you happen to stand along the, spe- the spectrum. Boy, that's true, Right? One person's legalist is another person's libertarian. Give space. Just give space in this. And he turns from the strong here and he he addresses the weak. Actually, from this point out, for a while, he's going to address the weak directly. But but he begins here and he says, second part of verse 3, Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Reason? For God has accepted him. For God has accepted him. Paul turns away from the strong. Now he's given them some strong medicine. And he turns to the weak and he says, no, wait a minute, you're not innocent in all this. You're not just the victim in all of this. You got your part in the problem here. You're contributing to the disunity of the church as well. And so he rebukes them. And it's interesting. He doesn't rebuke their immature faith. You see that? It's not their immature faith that he goes after. What he goes after is their self-righteous attitude. He goes after their attitude. He goes after their self-righteous attitude that eventuates in them calling into question. Listen to this. Calling into question the salvation of another Christian. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. That they have been moved along the place where they will actually look at another brother or sister in Christ and they will question whether they really are a Christian. I don't see how that person could be a Christian and do that. Wow. Such arrogance. Such hurtful attitude. I mean, I think this scenario went something like this. Those who are, who are less mature in their faith, they come into the church body, they're confronted by those who are more mature, stronger in their faith. They kind of come at them. And they, they question them, why do you do this? You know, why do you have this conviction? You don't do this thing. You refuse from eating meat. They start marshalling all the biblical arguments why that's a ridiculous position to hold. And the person who's weak in faith, they can't really argue back biblically as to why they have this position because it's, it's not a correct position to have. And so what happens is they, that deep down in, inside, they, they still believe this way, but they don't really know why they believe this way. And they can't defend it. And so when they're pushed, they just have no choice but to retreat like a a wild animal pushed into a corner and then they start attacking. And what they attack is the salvation of the person who has pushed them on their convictions. They start to judge that person. They start to use their convictions as the plumb line to determine what's sin and what's not sin, what's spiritual and what's not spiritual. And in effect, they call into question the grace of God in the life of other believers. It's amazing. The strong are, are responsible here for the disruption of the unity because they're pushing people they're trying to squeeze people into their mold. But the weak are responding back with this judgmental attitude. They were saying, you can't even be a Christian. I mean, I don't know how you can be a Christian and drink wine. I don't know how you can be. You claim to be a Christian, but, but you can't be. He judges him who eats, it says, verse 3. Don't do that. Why? Why? For God has accepted him. What does that mean? That means God has thrown open His arms wide, and He has brought them in. He has brought them into the family of God. In the same way, the stronger to embrace you, God has already embraced the strong. We try to illustrate it this way: Quiet times. Quiet times. You've been around the church for any length of time. You've heard the. you've got to have a quiet time, right? Quiet times are a product of 17th century German pietism. The Bible does not mandate a quiet time. It doesn't. There's nowhere in the scripture that it says that you have to have a quiet time. Do You know that? So what if somebody in the body, I mean, would would doubts arise in your mind if someone in the body came up to you here at Foothill and they they told you they thought it was unnecessary to read the Bible every day? It's not necessary to read the Bible every day. Well, I... I, I, Do you hear what they said? Do, Do you hear what they said? You don't have to read your Bible. What kind of Christian says that? I, I don't think they're a Christian. Do you, Honey, do you think they're a Christian? No, I don't, I don't think they're a Christian either. You know, the Bible says, doesn't say you have to read your Bible every day. Did you know that? It doesn't say that. It may be your conviction to do that. There's plenty of reason why it's good to do that. To say that, Jim, before I get myself too deeply into the hole here. But see, if you question the salvation of somebody because they don't have a conviction that they have to get up early in the morning at five o'clock and spend 40 minutes reading their Bible and then another 40 minutes praying. If you question their, their salvation, that their union with Jesus Christ based on that, then you have entered into the very thing that Paul is condemning here. The very thing he's condemning. Listen to me. Listen carefully on this. Both the contempt that the strong bear towards the weak and the judgmental attitude that the weak reflect back to the strong, both of those are an attack upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We need to know that and we need to believe that. Jesus Christ and him alone saves by grace through faith alone. Alone. And when we question his saving work in someone based upon these gray areas, whether they participate or don't participate, whether their conscience is liberated or bound, then we are calling into question the ability of Christ to save someone. And that, my friends, is a very serious, serious sin. It is a disruption of the very foundation of what makes the church. If Jesus Christ cannot save by grace through faith alone and keep people saved. Then the church has no hope. It has no hope. Christ alone saves and it is Christ alone who sanctifies. And we are in no position to condemn or to judge the work of God in another person's life. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. And it takes 36 verses to drive this thing home. To drive it home. I pray that God would deliver us as a body here, as a congregation from a spirit of judgmentalism and a spirit of condemnation. That He would humble our hearts that He would help us to love Him and love others and to allow him to work in their life without feeling the need to step in and rearrange things. Deliverance comes through the gospel and the gospel alone. And it is the gospel that sanctifies as it is preached and as it is believed and as it is acted upon. May God help us to be a gospel preaching, gospel believing, gospel living church let's pray oh father we are barely scratching the surface on this incredibly profound issue our father one that has wreaked havoc in your church through the ages and oh lord we are not immune here Those of us, we live here in the 21st century, we think ourselves so sophisticated. And yet, O Lord, we find ourselves falling prey to the same old problems. Our Father, I pray for myself and for each and every one of us. That as we come to this teaching, this text, week after week, for the next foreseeable future that you would help us to humble our hearts, O Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would begin to teach us. O Lord, that we might grow in graciousness and that we might become spiritually unified, one body growing together into a mature man in Christ. O Lord, that you would accomplish this through your power alone, because when you do, the world will look on and it will marvel and it will know that Christ is alive. Oh Lord, nothing will undercut our witness or our testimony quicker than a spirit of judgmentalism, uh, an attitude of contempt. And Lord, nothing will beautify the gospel more than a diverse people living together in peace and harmony and loving one another as Christ has loved us. We pray for your grace that these things be so. In Jesus' name.